0: Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Welcome back, everybody, to the International Sonography Podcast. This is episode 16, part one. Carl Sagan once said, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, and everyone you've ever heard of, every human being that ever was, lived out their lives. Our posturing, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all of this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. This was a quote that was recently used at a Ground Runs talk by our guest today, Dr. Santosh Pandapati, staff perinatologist of Obstetrics Medical Group and MFM director at O'Connor Hospital, San Jose, California. His clinical interests include fetal growth restriction, hypertensive conditions in pregnancy, critical care, and Doppler ultrasound. Another topic that Santosh is passionate about is developing a better understanding of the anticipated impacts of climate change on human health. In fact, his ground rounds talk was titled, Anticipated Impacts of Climate Change on Women's Health, What Can the Women's Healthcare Professional Do? This is why I thought having Santosh on for this episode would be such a great tie-in with ISP. As sonographers, many of us have taken a direct role in women's health care, and so I think it's important that within the occupation of medical sonography, use some of this data to inform ourselves, as well as some of the physicians that may be listening to this podcast playing an important role on how we care for this patient population. Santosh, Lorinda and I are so honored to have you here today to talk, and we'd like for you to start off by telling us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and what led you down the path of where you find yourself today.
1: Yes. uh, Thank you, Jamie and Lorinda. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your audience, and I'm honored that you would invite me. Um, I actually was born in India, and I was about three and a half when our family moved um, to the United States. My father is an electrical engineer, and he um, was recruited by Caltech in Pasadena to do a postdoctoral fellowship. So that's when we came over. Um, And then we moved to Illinois and then moved to Maryland. And I mainly grew up in Maryland uh, through most of elementary school all the way to the end of high school. And then I left Maryland to go to college and um, medical school at the University of Michigan. I I have kind of lived all over, and then I went on to do my OB/GYN residency in Seattle at the University of Washington. Then went to Denver, Colorado, for my fellowship in maternal-fetal medicine at the University of Colorado. Uh, Met my wife uh, to be there, and then we wanted to stay out west, and we went to Portland, Oregon for my first um, uh, job in private practice, maternal fetal medicine. I was in Oregon for about four and a half years, and for a variety of reasons then, we felt that uh, it wasn't working out for us, and we decided to move, and so I've been in practice in the San Jose area of California uh, since um, uh, 2012.
0: What originally led you to want to become a physician?
1: Well, I've always been interested in science. I've always been interested in big questions. Um, I actually, for the longest time, thought that I would become a physicist or astrophysicist. I had a lot of interest in in some fundamental scientific um, inquiry. Uh, but my... Father, being a very practical individual, said, well, you know, that's all great, but, you know, you got to earn a living, too. <laughs> and uh, and uh, no offense to the physicists who may be um, listening to, to this. It was one of these things where it just kind of dovetailed. I had an experience when I was in high school and had a major facial injury and, and ended up getting um, uh, treated by a plastic surgeon and just started opening up my eyes about... Uh, Medicine as a way to practice science in a very um, one-on-one manner with people. So what led
2: you down the path of maternal fetal medicine from that first initial interest in medicine? When I went through med school, during the basic science learning component, the physiology of cardiovascular medicine was really interesting. And so to me, I had just envisioned that I would be the problem solver for cardiac disease. And as a result, you know, cardiology would be the the way to go to tinker with that. And um, we have the option to choose where we want to do our various rotations. And to me, obstetrics and gynecology was just kind of like this, okay, I got to just get through it. So I'm going to pick a quiet rotation at a community hospital and not be the hardcore at the university uh, and, and just go do my time and, and move on and get back to cardiology. And lo and behold, I ended up, um, helping deliver 20 or 30 babies in the month that I was there and just having a blast and, um, did not expect, uh, to have that experience. And I thought, okay, well, that's great, but you know, this is all low risk and this is all, you know, fun and it was um, you know exciting. But on the other hand, I thought, well, this isn't something I'm really wanting to do for a lifetime. Until I started reading about the ways that things could go wrong in pregnancy. So I had all this fun time delivering healthy women, you know, low risk uh, pregnancies, and I thought, well, this isn't that interesting. I mean, this is kind of like you know, you get good cat with a baseball glove and you can catch a ball, right? So it's <laughs> it's no different.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Huh. And then, lo and behold, I start reading about the complications and starting to understand, oh my gosh, and what was really fascinating is understanding all the physiologic demands on uh, a mother's body uh, to accommodate this growing organism and all the ways that the cardiovascular system, the, the kidneys, the lungs, um, the hematologic systems, all the immune system all have to adapt all have to be modulated. It has to be done with a lot of precision. And then it comes to a screeching halt, right? So the baby's delivered, and then the placenta's out, and now you have to get back to where you were. Um, And this was very fascinating. And to me, at that point, I was thinking, wow. One, the patients are so much fun. Two, it's a great ability to do a variety of uh, technical skills. So learning ultrasound, learning prenatal diagnosis, learning the operative skills of um, uh, C-sections and more complicated C-sections, doing cercalogists. There was a lot of variety and it was really fun. And, and for the most part, patients are very motivated to, for their babies to do the right thing. And, um, and there was a clear closure Um, You know, the story had a beginning, a a middle narrative, and an ending. Uh, Whereas as I was thinking about cardiology in general, I thought, wow, you know, a lot of this is just chronic degenerative disease, and uh, frankly, um, maybe not as rewarding in terms of outcomes, right? So that got me thinking. And then at that point, I realized I better better really put my heart and uh, mind into thinking about this, and I committed to it. And I realized that at that point, I wouldn't just be doing general ob I really wanted to do maternal fetal medicine. So that was a, a commitment that I had made uh, to myself to get through the ob residency so I can get to the maternal fetal medicine and then get to what we all love to do, right? You included uh, as far as uh, fetal sonography and so forth. So, so that was my journey, and and I think everybody figures out their personality and their fit, um, to me it 's just a very unique situation of a lot of ethics a lot of um, uh, a lot of high risk situations um, two patients simultaneously that you 're trying to balance the interest for the baby and the mother at the same time very unique i mean there 's just nowhere else in medicine that that has those aspects to it. any specialized sonographer it 's not just going and obtaining certain images because in theory, you could have a computer algorithm do that, right? But it's putting all of this into context and saying, okay, this patient is coming to the table with X, Y, and Z issues, right? Maybe a particular medication exposure. So what do I have to be aware of that I need to be looking at in the fetus? Or maybe she has a medical condition, like poorly controlled diabetes. And so I need to make sure I'm focusing on the heart and the spine, right? And, and the neural tube." So there are a variety of things that really experienced sonographers are going to understand the context under which they're scanning. And uh, the best uh, MFM sonographers are the ones who are already kind of anticipating, this is what I need to be looking for, find those uh, items, and then are basically coming with that already packaged, right, to the um, perinatologist to say, okay, here's what I was worried about and this is what I see. And I'm not so sure I can clear X, Y, and Z, and and I'm particularly worried because I know that this, uh, you know, various conditions are going on. And um, it's understanding that and also understanding over time, Um, you know, this is what I expect to see in the first trimester, second trimester, and third trimester with certain conditions and understanding how that evolves over time.
1: Sonography is more than just acquisition of images and putting them in a nice package, right? Uh, that That is not what sonography is.
0: About. We appreciate it. We'll stop for applause on that. Okay, go
2: ahead. <laughs> it's, it's a team effort and understanding how, as a sonographer, the information you're providing, you're accessing this fetus in this black box and you're generating these images that are information. And... Which information is helpful, right? And, and how does that help the patient and the, the uh, care team figure out what the right thing to do for that patient is? It absolutely is, is crucial.
0: Let's jump into the issue of climate change. Recently, during a broadcast on NPR, there was a discussion that we heard with physicians whose patients were struggling with respiratory diseases, such as asthma and COPD. Their physicians' perspective climate change is impacting these patient populations. During this segment, it was noted that the World Health Organization calls climate change the greatest health risk of the 21st century. Obviously, this is a bold and unwavering statement by a respected international organization at a time where there is still debate among the general public of whether climate change is fact or fiction. So can you speak to this dichotomy that we see, this disagreement um, on whether this is fact or fiction, and what do you know to be true given your research and expertise on the subject?
1: Um, I actually had in residency the opportunity to take one month to research a topic and present a Grand Rounds lecture. This was a really wonderful opportunity offered by the University of Washington Residency Program at that time. And I had this interest, I had been reading um, about Climate change and human population growth. And um, I had been able to find a mentor um, in the um, Department of Internal Medicine who was actually the husband of one of our chief residents, who was actually uh, doing research on um, options for male contraception, reversible male contraception. And so He really was very encouraging with this, and I started to research this, and the more I read about this, the more scared and animated that I became. Uh, This was back in 2003, and ever since I've kept up with the lay, as a lay individual, um, on the scientific uh, developments in this area, especially in relation to human health and what does this really mean for society at large. Um, I think it's important to remember that this supposed debate is actually only going on in the media sphere, and the majority of the American population and the overwhelming majority of the world population understands that climate change is a real phenomenon that is based in good scientific discovery and not something that is of debate. Um, It has unfortunately been warped into a political debate, and this is where we get into um, the more complex uh, aspects of combating climate change. Um, So the World Health Organization is, is making a statement that really is not surprising for anyone who's aware of climate science and the observational data that has been accumulating over the last several decades. Um, so yes, climate change is, is definitely happening. The problem with climate change is, as a topic is that it is so big, and it can become so overwhelming for any individual that Often I think it's not so much denialism, but more so just a difficulty in terms of psychologically wrapping our heads around it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's so alarming that I think it just creates this reaction to create a shell around ourselves to say either we're going to ignore it or you know, it's a problem that isn't affecting me immediately at this time. And place where I'm at, and I think we in the West and in the United States are very privileged, most of us, to be able to say that.
0: It's, it's not a debate within the science community, but it's it's a, that so many issues are already politicized that when you go to talk to people about it, it feels like a political issue.
1: Yes, absolutely. It has completely become a political issue, and it's important to understand the history of why this is the case. Um, it is What we're fundamentally talking about, and I actually think that the people who know that climate science is real, that the findings are real, fossil fuel companies themselves. And this is why they have fought tooth and nail to sow discord in the general public and among politicians. And they have used techniques and strategies that they've borrowed from the big tobacco industry to create the climate that we're in, the political climate that we're in. Mm -hmm. Um, It really is a disservice to the hard work of thousands of scientists. The science is not a debate. I think most of the audience will have heard that 97% or more of climate scientists agree that the Earth is warming The Earth is warming because of an increased emission of greenhouse gases, the most abundant being carbon dioxide, but also uh, methane as um, the second um, uh, leading gas. It's not due to natural phenomenon, but it is due to human activities um, causing the release of greenhouse gases all over the planet, not in any particular location. Uh, so the, the those three principles that the Earth is warming, that the Earth is warming because of an increase in uh, greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, and that the greenhouse gas concentrations are increasing because of human activity, are really unequivocal scientific fact at this point. Sure. Um, the fact that it, the surveys say 97%. Well, I don't think there's any human endeavor where 100% agreement exists for anything, yes. especially in medicine, of course. Yep. Um, and so the fact that 97% or more of climate scientists are in alignment and agreement is not a conspiracy, but actually more reflecting how overwhelmingly clear the data is
2: is. This is where an avenue like yours is helpful, because I think there's still a lot of um, lack of understanding in the medical community as to how severe and how grave of a threat this really is. Um, the uh, University of California, San Francisco, uh, just in their d- winter uh, edition of their magazine, have a leading article now about climate change and how this is a health Crisis, and if you're stepping out of the women's healthcare arena and you're just looking at human health, I mean it's very clear there are higher rates of coronary disease, respiratory ailments, asthma, COPD. Um, children, if you the pedi- pediatric land is is uh, very concerned because kids are very prone to dehydration, um, very prone to respiratory uh, illness, and so they're already observing in the pediatric literature, worse uh, outcomes in in that uh, arena. Now, these are the kids who are going to have to grow up and help us fight and confront these uh, realities. Um, The other scary thing is where we're headed is um, with the current business as usual, we're at about 414 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Again, we've never, as a species, ever been exposed to uh, carbon dioxide levels this high. But by 2100, it's predicted to be a thousand or more parts per million. There's very clear pediatric literature and adult literature that says high, the higher the CO2 concentration, the less cognitive performance we have. And in fact, maybe 25-30% reduction in our cognitive performance if we see this level of CO2 rise. The other issue is heat independently lowers test performance and cognitive uh, function. What about the combination? What if we're roasting under 1,000 parts per million of CO2? Are we just going to be too limited intellectually as a species to be able to solve these problems in 80 years? I mean, these are legitimate concerns, right? So, are we going to basically watch the frog sous vide in the pot before and by which point it's too late, right? And that's kind of where we're at.
0: And can you give us a few examples uh, now that you know this information and now that you have your own patients in your own practice of how you can start weaving this into your visits with your patients?
1: Human population growth has an impact on. Climate and emissions, and um, our role as obstetrician-gynecologists, maternal-fetal medicine specialists, etc., involves, um, for sure, family planning, and involves helping patients uh, figure out how many children they want and what kind of lives that they want to live. It very much has a connection to the climate at large, and so. That was the initial connection and aha moment for me. Um, you know, I went off and did fellowship. I gave the same Grand Rounds talk in fellowship, but then I got busy with life. Um, I had met my wife. We started to build a family, working on developing a career, and I kind of put this all to the side until the and still reading about the topic, um, you know um, here and there. But then, in the last few years, started to get more interested in the topic again, as we have seen um, uh, the loss of U.S. leadership, especially since the Par- withdrawal from the Paris Accords. Yes. Um, but I became medical director for a local hospital uh, for maternal-fetal medicine. And I've started to look at not just one-on-one interactions as a physician with a patient, but now starting to look at populations and starting to look at the entire population of women coming through one particular hospital and how are the health outcomes at that hospital. And when we start thinking about, okay, what about the area, what about the entire Bay Area? How do the outcomes at one particular hospital compare against the other hospitals in the area? And you start taking a step back and you start understanding that when you start looking at populations at large, um, that what we do as healthcare providers and how we educate our patients in terms of birth control, how many children they want, um, spacing their children, Um, encouraging women to seek their education, um, providing women the ability to take control over their lives, actually has a bigger impact than just for that family, but starts in aggregate to have an impact on society at large and also has an impact on the climate at large. And so it started to occur to me over the last, couple years that I need to start exploring this area again. It's not so much that there is a direct one-to-one correlation between the climate and, say, a mother's gestational diabetes. But what is fascinating is I'm encouraging that mother to eat healthier, to exercise more, are also in line with what we would want to do in a macroscopic scale to help combat climate change, right? So um, eating a healthier diet, more plant-based diet, less carbohydrate-centered, encouraging exercise and less use of vehicles, encouraging um, uh, the family to do the same, and often women are the nutritional heads of their households.
0: Sure.
1: Um, I know my wife is for our family household. So we start to understand that these are situations where those individual decisions we're making start to, in aggregate, have this bigger impact. And if it's a mother who's had two children already and now she's obese and she's got gestational diabetes, and we're talking about, so do you, what are your plans for the future? Are you really thinking about getting pregnant again, or are you thinking about, um, you know, ending your reproductive career and focusing on, you know, being a mother and um, focusing on your health? And I think in those areas, obstetrician gynecologists now need to be much more aware, right? For example, here, In San Jose, we're in a sort of heat wave, um, 100 degree temperatures predicted and having occurred today and predicted for the next few days. And actually, uh, the city of San Jose has opened up some cooling centers locally, so places where cool indoor spaces. Um, And this is going to become more and more prevalent. And so, We know, for example, that the more um, heat waves that a mother is exposed to, we're starting to understand the data is accumulating premature birth, possibly even stillbirth. And so, again, right now, I think there's a very heterogeneous exposure uh, for patients. Depends where you are in the world, depends what resources you have access to, If we're allowing climate change to go unabated, 20 to 30 years, this may become very prevalent for most of the population, right, regardless of your socioeconomic background. Um, So I think that from the standpoint of how does it affect patients, there's a macro scale and there's the micro scale.
2: So, on that microscopic level, I'm assuming that the patients are hearing this. What are their reactions to some of this information? Are they receptive? Are they, you know, totally thinking that this is uh, out in la la land and not reality?
1: This is where I think physicians have a unique role and responsibility. When you're talking one on one with people, these kinds of situations probably are going to become more common over the coming years to decade. When we're giving such recommendations to patients, it's pretty obvious to them uh, because they're living through the weather changes. Um, the bigger topic about climate change itself doesn't come up per se. Um, occasionally I'll have a patient say, yeah, it's amazing what's happening with the environment and amazing what's happening with climate. And then we get into a little bit more discussion. I think the area of medicine that right now is kind of at the forefront and experiencing this the most is the primary care, especially the, the pulmonary side of things, right? With air quality, with particulate levels, with heat all of which can exacerbate respiratory conditions. Um, So we know that eventually it's going to affect every human being in various ways, and probably ways that we won't be able to predict uh, entirely. But patients are quite accepting of um, the one-on-one recommendations, and they're quite accepting of the fact that it has been getting warmer. And that they have to do more careful analysis of what their activities are going to be and when they're going to do these kinds of activities. In California, of course, in this area, we've also been subject to um, wildfires, uh, tragic wildfires, as I think most everyone knows. And during the period of those wildfires, we had very significant, very bad air quality, very significant levels of Fine particulate matter, and these were situations where we were advising patients to avoid being outdoors um, for prolonged periods of time, uh, to avoid exposures. So uh, it isn't so much a direct conversation about climate change, but it is a very clear topic in the background.
0: As if you were talking to a patient about their treatment of their diabetes, your overall goal would be to jump ahead and look at the prevention of it so that you're not always having to treat it and uh, talking about the air quality and how it affects them and how to stay out of it once it's there. But then for you guys to focus, how can we, you know, overall help the air quality?
1: I think you're hitting on exactly the area that is most fascinating and interesting to me as far as what is the role of healthcare providers in terms of prevention So much of medicine is aimed at creating healthy lifestyles, preventive lifestyles, because we all understand that once a disease process is underway, it can be very difficult to correct, of course, Um, and we often just victim to the, the progress of that disease. So the disease in this case, of course, is the climate itself changing because of human activities. And the prevention is also there well within human grasp. This is a self-inflicted wound that may become fatal. And we need to go ahead and start aggressively and earnestly um, stopping this self-infliction. And we need to start not only doing that, but we need to start doing a holistic repair, right? And so, absolutely, if we can create conditions in the environment and the climate that will minimize fine particulate matter and emissions, that will minimize heat waves, that will minimize drought and water uh, scarcity that will allow for people to consume nutritious foods. I think these are all going to be way easier and better than trying to find fancy interventions for people who are already sick. The other problem is that this is a moving target. It's important to understand that if no additional greenhouse gas emissions were to occur starting this instant. There is still a momentum and a a process underway, given all the greenhouse gas that has already been emitted throughout human history and has accumulated in the atmosphere. We are far from any kind of equilibrium. The last time carbon dioxide levels were this high was in the Miocene period 15 to 20 million years ago, when temperatures were about four degrees centigrade higher water sea level was up to 40 meters higher at equilibrium, right? So it's at a point in time where things have balanced out. So even if we were to do nothing further, for the next thousands of years, we are going to have worsening temperatures and climate. That is if we stopped all emissions as of today, right? So we are facing a very, very uncertain future as a human species. And it's not that life can't survive. Life obviously has survived this level of carbon dioxide, and in fact, much higher levels of carbon dioxide. The problem is it just may not be human life that survives, right? So
0: quality of life as well.
1: Absolutely. Um, And the quality of life is going to deteriorate dramatically um, over the next coming decades. And it goes back actually to the very beginning when I was contemplating what career to choose, right? I think the climate scientists have done a wonderful job elucidating what is happening and have done a very diligent job reporting that. What has unfortunately not happened, is the activism side of it. And pure science isn't usually in any role of activism or advocacy. However, physicians, healthcare providers, nurses, sonographers even, right, all are interfacing with other human beings. We understand disease processes. We understand triggers that can cause diseases. In this case, we're talking about climate change as the trigger, and we understand the value of prevention. We're also in the role of communication and communication of scientific concepts to people in a intimate one-on-one setting. And I think we're in a very unique role and vantage point where we can bring abstract concepts to people in their daily lives in a very practical manner. And I think this is where the healthcare community at large has started to understand that they need to have a larger advocacy role um, in terms of educating the public and trying to make it clear that there really isn't a debate. And you may debate all you want, but you can't debate physics. And Eventually, this is going to hurt everyone's health, um, and ultimately, that's where it gets people in their hearts, right? So when, when people say, oh my gosh, this actually has a direct relationship to the health of myself and my family, my children, uh, I think that has a great deal of power um, in terms of let's move on beyond this debate and let's start working on solutions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As soon as somebody feels like it directly affects them, that quickly gets their attention.
2: I've made the uh, acquaintance of um, the co-lead attorney for a case that you may have heard of. Um, It's called Juliana versus the U.S. government. And it's a case of um, children who are suing the U.S. government for lack of action on climate change because this is going to impact their future health, right? And this may actually with hope, go to the Supreme Court. And it's currently, I think, at the level of the Ninth uh, uh, Circuit Court. And so actually the co-lead counsel lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I happened to meet with him uh, a month or two ago. And we were actually just emailing about this very issue this morning. Because when you take, for example, storms, and you say, um, is this storm due to climate change, it's not so much that whether the storm happened or not due to climate change, it's just that there's a higher frequency of storms. And then among the storms that occur, there's a higher precipitation amount, there's a higher wind intensity, there's a higher impact factor, essentially. And now there is a very robust attribution science that has developed that can factor that in. They can run the climate model or the storm modeling with and without climate change involved, and they can say, look, this hurricane is 30% more intense because of climate change. Were climate change not a factor, it would have been that much less damaging, right? so. We're not quite there with healthcare, but we're starting to see the beginnings of this. And so we understand that statistically with more particulate emissions from fossil fuel combustion, we understand with more heat that statistically we're going to start to see more congenital heart defects. We're seeing more evidence of premature birth. We're seeing more evidence of low birth weight and fetal growth restriction, stillbirth even. So we know... From pure population numbers, we're going to be seeing more. We've already started to see this, and the early data is starting to come out in the last few years about this. Now, <clears throat> if you take any particular patient, say, who's been exposed to wildfire related particulates, right? So we had the big campfire in California, and it really in our area, the air quality was horrific. Um, you know, we were. Very high, over 200, 300, you know, um, uh, on the air quality index. So if you take a pregnant mother who is exposed at that time, and let's say six months later, she's delivering at 32 weeks because of premature birth, uh, having premature labor, can we say that that was directly caused by her exposure to the wildfire smoke? we're not there at this point, right? What we can say is we can look at the population in a whole and say, hey, there was a slight uptick in the premature birth rate, you know, after you controlled for other factors. Now, I'm thinking that we're going to be getting to the point where we can start to say, well, for this particular mother, her premature labor, she might have delivered prematurely from premature labor anyway, but her premature labor started three weeks earlier than it otherwise would have. Right. And so that's where we're starting to head. So this attribution science that has developed in the climate modeling and weather forecasting starting to creep into other areas. And it will be interesting to see where that heads in terms of human health. But what I always uh, hearken back to is how much data do we really need? And, it's not the hard numbers that matter to me because it's a moving target, right? The climate is going to keep heating up. CO2 emissions are continuing to rise. Right now we're on a business as usual path. So whatever numbers we have from a study from 2019 will immediately be outdated by 2025, right? I mean, the reality is that is going to keep worsening. So it's not so much that we know hey, there's going to be a 30% higher, well, that's today, there's a 30% higher rate of a congenital heart defect. It might be 300% higher, you know, a decade from now, right? I mean, are these numbers we want to play with? Santosh, this has been such a wonderful, informative discussion so far today. And we look forward to learning more about the impact of the environment on women's health. For our audience, please join us for part two to hear more of Dr. Pendipathy. Until then, take care.